Let us pray. Gracious God, as we come before your word, we pray that your spirit would lead us and teach us. In fact, we know that you have promised as much that when your word is proclaimed, that it does not return in void. So quicken our hearts to be open to what your spirit might want to say to us through Matthew's account of the death of Jesus and its aftermath. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Well, I'm grateful to uh, David for his uh, preaching on mockery last Sunday, and I was glad for it. And um, it's good for me every once in a while to watch Zoom. I nearly screamed when I heard about the new engagement in our midst of uh, Cody and Nicole, for which we're grateful. And we have uh, a good God with lots of good news, and it's nice to have our freshly minted new couple here too, um, Evan and Renata. We're glad you're not strangers amongst us, even though you've gone to a different church, because God has called you there. Um, there's a, um, an outline as usual, and then um, um, a handout. And for the outline, I want to be upfront and to tell you what I'm going to talk about, and it'll provide a context for us. And in being so explicit and straightforward, that doesn't give you permission not to listen, because there's lots to learn, even though I've summarized it here. What can we learn from Matthew's account of Jesus's death and its aftermath? What can we learn from Matthew's account of Jesus's death and its aftermath? Well, we can learn all kinds of things. There are four in particular. God accomplishes his purposes despite and even through human folly and wickedness. Feeling abandoned isn't a sin or even abnormal. It can happen to the best of us. Jesus's death triggers new life and the new age. And Jesus's death was for Gentile as well as Jew. Now that's what we can learn from Matthew's account of Jesus's death. But as I've been saying through the whole course of our studying the passion narrative, the point is not for us to take stock and to take lesson so much as simply to step back and to allow Jesus to die for us. You see, we can be proud of things that we learn. We can be glad that we're equipping ourselves to know more about discipleship and all that kind of thing, which is good. But the main point is to allow Jesus to do for us what only Jesus could do, and that is to reconcile us to God. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he was accomplishing a thing that theologians call the atonement, which is really the at-one-ment. How we became at one with God was through what Jesus did on the cross. And as we know, it was a horrible agony. It was a despicable, shameful thing. One person who described the crucifixion reminds us that when a person is hanging on the cross, one does not have the dignity so much as to swat the flies from one's wounds. One does not have control over one's bodily functions, and one can be there for hours and for days propped up, seemingly helpless, having people mock you as under the baking sun, you die by suffocation or whatever else comes first. It's a horrible thing. You know, the situation was particularly ironic for the followers of Jesus. We're beneficiaries of the story. We know why Jesus died, to atone for our sins, to make us one with God by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But my friends, for Jesus' followers, 
who didn't seem to understand even when he predicted his crucifixion, this was the worst of imaginable outcomes. And it wasn't until after the resurrection, and indeed after the formation of the New Testament in some ways, that we fully understand what Jesus was doing. But it seemed like game over in the worst possible way. I mean, here Jesus was supposed to be enthroned. He was, but not in the way that you think he was. Jesus is the object of mockery and scorn. Everybody finally gets their shot at him. They mock him, inviting him to come down from the cross. He seems hopeless. He seems helpless, finally. And there on the cross, your hopes of this Messiah are dashed. There are some people who come along nowadays and claim to be the Jewish Messiah. There were lots of people in ancient times who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah as well. And the one way that you knew that they were not the Messiah was if they died. And here, Jesus, he seemed so promising. He seemed like the one who was to come. He seemed like the one who was going to finally take charge and set things right. And lo and behold, he gets crucified on a cross, hung outside the city like a dog, mocked, hanging between two common thieves, more ridiculed than they and even by them. No one had the slightest idea. No one could have imagined that in the midst of this horror, God was accomplishing his purposes. Uh, many of you are probably too young to have watched the movie The Sting. I remember watching it. It was back in the days when uh, Robert Redford um, uh, was young and the um, girls my age were paying far more attention to him than they were to me. And uh, it was the, the story of um, this sting operation where um, it seems as though at the end, um, Robert Redford and uh, the, uh, the other guy, the guy who has the salad dressing, hmm? Paul Newman, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, uh, they, get, they get killed. Uh, and at the very end, you think, oh my goodness, the bad guys had his way, there they are dead game over. And then I remember the first time I saw it, I just couldn't believe it. Robert Redford and um, Paul Newman got up off the floor and were alive again. And you realize that the whole thing was a sting operation. It was a plan and a complex plot in order to get money out of this guy that had killed their friend Luther. And at the end, you just kind of think, I didn't see that coming. Well, the same with Jesus's death on the cross. We didn't see it coming. God saw it coming. And here in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 56, we see the account of Jesus's actual death and we learn of its significance only in part. It was an ironic situation circumstantially, as we've described Jesus dying on the cross, not the way in which a Messiah is normally to make his uh, foray into Messiahship. And biblically, it is also ironic because there are so many parallels here with Psalm 22 that many New Testament scholars have actually suggested that this story never happened, but that instead somebody with Psalm 22 just kind of rewrote the story of Jesus based on everything that happened in Psalm 22. Well, there's no precedent for that. The historical record of Jesus is beyond dispute, and it's an entirely fanciful and erroneous supposition. But one thing is true. 
Psalm 22 and other Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled in a way that no one but God could have orchestrated. That's why we have verse 48, for example. Immediately, one of them, by running and taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine and gave him a drink. That's the fulfillment of a specific psalm, Psalm 69. And as we've seen throughout the story of Jesus' passion, time and time again, circumstances happen that are in fulfillment of Psalm 22. Mostly Psalm 22, but also Psalms. And in some cases, Isaiah 53 as well. Now, of course, you can fudge your own fulfillment to a certain extent, but if you're Jesus hanging on a cross, literally stapled to uh, wood, uh, you have no control over whether some soldier is going to go and get um, a sponge and fill it with vinegar and prop it on a stick and give it to you. You have no control over whether soldiers are going to divide their garments around you. In other words, in the midst of all of this chaos, God was orchestrating and planning our salvation. And it was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, of course, you can argue that they went back and they were looking for Psalms and they were looking for verses that matched. But that doesn't match the history of the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms, by the time that Jesus came along, as I've preached about before, was understood to be a collection of, of uh, Psalms by David, which were actually prophecies about the David to come. In the Greek translation of the book of Psalms, including Psalm 22, it says, as the title to the Greek, pertaining to fulfillment regarding David. Pertaining to fulfillment. In other words, this is a prophecy regarding David. And then in Psalm 22, the Davidic figure cries out in prophecy, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most people think that the main fulfillment of Jesus' life took place in Isaiah 53, and they often wonder why there are so few quotes of Isaiah 52 to 53, which explicitly talks about a suffering servant who's going to die a vicarious atoning death for the sins of the world. But that's, that's kind of like the icing on the cake. The bread and the butter consists of the fact that the Psalms prophesied, as was known to Jesus and understood at that time by him alone, that the Psalms were prophecies about one who would suffer, that Jesus would suffer and die. And as we read in Psalm 89, that after his death, um, there would come to follow in Psalms 93, 94, following three Psalms afterwards, this victorious declaration that Jesus is King, that Yahweh reigns. In our time together, what remains, I want to look at three C's the cry from the cross, the chaos around the cross, and the collaborators under the cross. The cry from the cross. No sermon on this passage could do, could be really considered a valid sermon without some discussion of Jesus' statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one doubts the historicity of the event because um, this was and is, in a sense, kind of an embarrassment. When you read it, you think, Jesus is God. He knows, he knows everything. He's perfect. And yet, on the cross, when we're expecting him to have shouts of victory or something, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, what it meant for Jesus was that he was fulfilling the destiny of the David who was prophesied in the Psalms. 
And so in a sense, it comes as no surprise, Jesus has orchestrated this, but he does say in fulfillment of prophecy, and because this is actually how he's feeling, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's different about Jesus is if you and I say, my God, my God, why have, I, why have you forsaken me? We're probably having some kind of a crisis of faith. You know, we're doubting God. We're maybe thinking about not believing in God any longer. But that was completely alien to the Hebrew and the Jewish mindset. Uh, not believing in God was kind of like it is in most places in Africa today. Just unthinkable. Of course there's a God. So here Jesus is not doubting. He's not losing his faith. He's giving expression to his sense of forsakenness. I think I've said it once before in the past two years, but I'll, I'll say it again because it's, there's an important lesson to this. Once heard a Jew comment, you Christians, when you get disillusioned with God, you leave the church. We Jews, when we get disillusioned with God, we go to the synagogue and we said, God, I don't have the foggiest idea what you're doing. I'm disillusioned. You see the difference? One is you kind of jump ship, assuming that you know better than God. And the other is you stay in the faith and you say, as Jesus did here, Lord, I'm feeling abandoned. This is beyond the scope of what I'm comfortable with. So Jesus did not lose faith. He felt abandoned. And as I was studying this week, it occurred to me, I, I learned a few things that I hadn't thought of before that I want to share with you that take us towards a better understanding of Jesus' statement on the cross. It's beyond fathoming. We'll never understand what it meant for Jesus to bear the sins of the world and actually literally to have God turn his face away from him. But the key lies in verse 45. Darkness was upon the face of the earth from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That is from about noon until 3 p.m. I wonder if you recognize a certain similarity in the words darkness was upon the face of the earth. That takes us right back to Genesis chapter 1, before God has given his light, before God has ordered the world. So we are returning to a kind of a state of primeval chaos. But also, darkness was a symbol of the absence of God. I did my doctoral dissertation on sun worship in ancient Israel, and one of the things that I tried to explore was how the Israelites could ever have worshipped the sun. And I concluded that there was a strong tradition within ancient Israel that associated the sunlight with the presence of God. It was a symbol of God's presence. So when there was darkness upon the face of the earth, People would have been wondering, what is God doing? And Jesus would have understood this to be a symbol of the fact that God was turning his face away from Jesus because God cannot look upon sin, presumably. Matthew doesn't say that, but we learn that elsewhere in the scriptures. And that happened from noon until three o'clock. When did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? About three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This is the statement of someone who has witnessed the symbol of God's absence for at least three hours, three hours. And according to some commentators, this was also a time of complete silence. And it's to take the moment that Jesus is on the cross and to kind of shine a spotlight on it by not shining a spotlight on it, of saying things about it by saying nothing about what's happening if indeed this was a time of silence. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's breaking the silence. 
And he's ending his time with that. And he is expressing his sense of abandonment. But that was the end of the eclipse. In other words, no sooner did Jesus give expression to his feeling of abandonment than God answered it by allowing the light to come. And there's also an answer to the question, if we, learn, if we look at the structure of the, um, of the passage, which you'll find in your appendix on page 10. Just take a look back there. I know there are a lot of notes to thumb through. You can do that later in the week. Some of you have already done it earlier in the week. But you'll notice at the top of page 10 in the structure of our narrative, you have Jesus's cry of prayer in verse 46, which is recorded speech. And then in the second of the triad, number two, the confession of the soldiers is the other account of recorded speech. And it's as though the Gentiles, when they say, truly this man was the son of God, it functions as the answer to Jesus's cry of despair. Gentiles, Romans, affirm the fact God was truly with this man. God truly was this man. This man is not forsaken by God. He's imbued with God. God is there. Truly this was the Son of God. So the story goes on to account in verses 47 and uh, 49, a belief that Jesus might have been crying to Elijah. After all, Eli, Eli, might sound a little bit like Eli, yeah, Eli, yeah. And there's no doubt that Jesus's voice would have been strained at this time. He was up on a cross, he'd been suffering, he was thirsty. So it's maybe not surprising that they thought that this man was summoning Elijah. And there was a tradition within Judaism that believed that Elijah would come to rescue a righteous person. So they're saying, okay, well, this guy hasn't come down from the cross. That's no evidence that he's anybody special. We're kind of doubting here. I don't know. He's crying out. Let's see if Elijah answers because Elijah, we believe, sometimes will answer the cry of a righteous man. And then as a throwaway line in verse 48, it's hard to know why it, Jesus was thirsty. Maybe somebody thought we'll, we'll, we'll get a chance to keep him alive a little bit longer to see whether Elijah comes. He runs and he takes a sponge. He fills it with sour wine and gave him a drink. A little throwaway line. It's about as significant, it would seem, as, I don't know, me picking a Kleenex up off the floor. But it's there because it's in fulfillment of Psalm 69. And all through this, it's just infused with prophetic fulfillment. Others are waiting to see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus, again, crying with a loud voice, yielded his spirit. He let it go. The the vocabulary of Matthew indicates that this is not a victim of circumstance. We know that all through the passion narrative. Jesus let it happen, but now he yields up his spirit. Let me not overlook what this means to us. Some of us can be inclined to lose our faith when we feel abandoned. We say our prayers. God doesn't seem to answer our prayers. It's as though there's kind of a, a ceiling there. They just bounce off the ceiling. We experience an unanswered prayer here and an unanswered prayer there, and we begin to think God doesn't really exist. You might even think of situations which you just can't explain when you said this is the way God should have done it, but this is what happened instead. Well, your circumstance is probably nothing compared to the contrast between what people expected God to be doing in Jesus and this guy hanging on a cross. I mean, it's pathetic. Hanging there with two criminals just kind of bleeding out, not responding in any kind of a way. 
My friends, feelings of abandonment are not peculiar. And I want to suggest perhaps most helpfully that feelings of abandonment shouldn't lead us to doubt, as natural as that is. I wonder if sometimes our frustration over unanswered prayer is really the fact that God is saying, as he might well have said in this situation, <laughs> I know what you're praying for, but trust me, in the present circumstances, in the present circumstances which you do not like, which are the result of sin, and which you do not understand, I've got this. God had this when Jesus was hanging on the cross. God had it when Jesus was asking for the cup to be passing from him. God had it when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? So I want us to take a minute just to think about the unanswered prayers and the frustrations that you have, the doubts that you've had, and I wonder if your God is big enough, as he is, maybe to be even in control of the circumstances, to say, you know what? This doesn't look good, but I'm busy and I'm doing my job and I'm managing a lot of circumstances here. I'm bringing a lot of good out of human evil and trust me, I've got this. He had it in this situation. I think he has it in ours as well. The transition to the chaos around the cross comes with Jesus' second cry. We mentioned it already in verse 50, but Jesus said again, crying with a loud voice, but Jesus, again, crying with a loud voice, yielded his spirit. Commentators have observed that often when a prophet is about to do something significant or when God is about to do something significant, one of his prophets will shout with a loud voice. And I have in your notes a list of passages that you can look up with that. And so I'm thinking perhaps, and it's only perhaps, but it matches the context that when Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded his spirit, that that was kind of a signal. Jesus has died. Folks, this is cataclysmic. Watch what happens. Notice the way that in which the verbs pile up in verse 51 to 53. And look, the curtain of temple was split in two from top to bottom. The earth was shaken and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of sleeping saints were raised. This cascade of events comes in the wake of Jesus yielding his spirit and in the wake of Jesus calling out for that last time. It's as though he's summoning the end times to unfold, and so they are. The chaos around the cross, as I've already noted and I won't dwell on because I've talked about it already, involved human evil and even trivial folly. That was part of the chaos around the cross. And it reminds us of Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But the real chaos, the more notable chaos, is the supernatural chaos that comes. And only here in Matthew are verses 51 to 53 recorded. No other gospel writer records this, so it's worth our taking a look at and reflecting on because we're not going to look at it or find it if we're hearing from another gospel writer. The supernatural chaos begins in the temple. It's a religious phenomenon. When Jesus died on the cross, the temple curtain was split in two from top to bottom. And this signals a whole number of things. It signals the fact perhaps that God who is thought to dwell in the temple is tearing his garments wide open in mourning as if to say, 
How could this possibly have come to this where I've had to yield my son to die on the cross? And uh, it's the mourning and the frustration of God at the same time as his expression of victory through the willing sacrifice of his son. So it's God kind of mourning the situation that this is what had to happen in order for him to reconcile the world. But the rending from top to bottom also gives us access to the temple. If it was the inner temple, if it was the inner curtain that was torn, this is where the high priest only went once a year into the Holy of Holies. And when that curtain is opened, it's God's way of saying, my friends, Jesus has rebuilt a temple right here in front of your eyes. And you now have access to the Holy of Holies. You have access to God in a way that you didn't before. It's also a signal, many think, of the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Jesus said, I will rebuild the temple in three days, but he also said, I will destroy it. And so the yielding of the veil from top to bottom is a way of kind of tearing at the framework of the temple. And it's reasonable to suppose as well that if there was an earthquake and that rocks were split, that there were cracks in the temple. The temple was done. It was literally done in AD 70. It was finished off. But here at the beginnings of it, it began earlier in the Passion narrative when Jesus left the temple. And now as Jesus is dying on the cross, beyond the imaginations of the people who are making fun of him, the temple is being destroyed and it's being rebuilt in the person of Jesus Christ three days later. And of course, part of the chaos of the cross and its supernatural significance includes not just the finale, not just God's judgment, not just access, but it involves the resurrection of the dead. Because even before he was raised from the dead, as soon as Jesus died for our sins, the penalty had been paid. <laughs> and it's almost as like dead saints in Jerusalem were just, as soon as it happened, they were just right off the mark. You know, it was like just jumping the gun of Jesus' own resurrection. And graves were opened and tombs were opened and some of the sleeping saints were raised. And Matthew leaves it ambiguous in verses 52 and 53 about whether these people were resurrected after Jesus or whether in some ways they were already kind of quasi-resurrected and maybe staying in their tombs until after the resurrection. Folks, the point is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he conquered death. His death brought life to us because he paid the penalty for our sins and for the sins of those who went before. And today we can access that eternal life by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I said at the beginning. Don't try to do anything. Just sit back and watch him and let him do it for you and accept it as a gift. There's no other way to be reconciled before God. So it was a supernatural event. It was the beginning of the new age. And then finally and thirdly, We've had the cry from the cross, the chaos around the cross, and we now have the collaborators under the cross. What greater contrast could there be than the witnesses in verses 54 and the witnesses in verses 55 and 56? And of course, the point is this, is that Jesus' death accomplished something that was global. The Gentile oppressors on the one hand and the, the women followers, the Jewish followers on the other hand, are kind of like an alpha and omega. They're opposites. And it means that the death of Jesus was for everyone. The centurion and those who were watching over Jesus upon seeing the earthquake and what else was happening, which we learned from another gospel, included Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. They were either awestruck or very afraid. But the point is this. 
the Gentiles declare, truly this man was the Son of God. When they say that he's the Son of God, they're adopting a title that was used for the non-Jewish followers of Jesus. He's already been declared to be the King of the Jews, so we know he's the Jewish Messiah, but now the Romans are saying, not just King of the Jews, Son of God. This guy's everybody's God. And if that comes from the lips of those who were tormenting him, it's to be taken seriously. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. And then finally is the witness of the women followers of Jesus. Many women were there watching from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, deaconing him, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who were told, seemingly in another um, uh, gospel, was probably Salome. Now, it's normal for you and me to think, well, of course the women are mentioned, and of course the women are named. That was not the culture of first century Judaism. Um, every day a Gentile would pray, or a Jew would pray, thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, and thank you that you did not make me a woman. And all through the passion narrative, we've seen men who claim great things, but who do bad things, who do bad things, but then who are kind of repentant in the person of Judas. And we've got saints like Peter, sinners like Judas, um, people like Pilate. The only people who have a positive role to play in the passion narrative are the women. Pilate's wife coming and saying, don't have anything to do with this man. And here we have the disciples have all fled, but many women were there watching from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, and among whom, I want you to know their names, Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It was to the women, of course, that Jesus gave the message of his resurrection. And he allowed the women to be the first to testify to the resurrection. People whose testimony was not taken seriously elsewhere. My friends, Jesus takes the role of women seriously. Jesus values women every bit as much as men. And here, there's credit given to the women that could not be claimed by any of the men in the whole narrative. There they were, watching from a distance. The others have fled. They've been ministering to him all along. And among them, were Nicole, Christine, the other Nicole, who I'm embarrassed by giving a stool to, Mary Beth, him, Charmaine, Michelle, Louise, Renata, Nafisa, Sandra, Shina, and the woman hiding behind China, whose face I cannot see, Megan. <laughs> no, not Megan. <laughs> Your ministry is important to God, and you are singled out. Over the past few weeks, I've been reading about Paul and his views on women and have been struck by the number of times in which Paul in his epistles mentions the ministry of women. And he mentions them over and over again, often by name, and in most cases, it's with a commendation. Priscilla is mentioned in front of Aquila. There's a woman named Junia who in, Acts, in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, 
is listed as among the apostles. And we've been tempted to translate that name into a man's name, but it's a woman's name. And the best evidence seems to be that this was a woman who had seen Jesus and who was named as a small a apostle, uh, somebody who was witness or somebody who was a, a key figure in, in the church. My friends, thank God for the ministry of women. Thank God that the ministry of Jesus has extended not only to women, which you wouldn't be surprised to hear, but to Gentile pagan men who are the very scorners of Jesus. He has come to save us all, and it cost him everything. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.